The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to the Identity Matters Podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of the believer's identity in Christ. So let's check in now on our latest podcast. We welcome our podcast listeners today. Last week we talked about the importance of grace and favor meaning the same thing and Jesus literally becoming the favor of God. If you also remember we talked about in order to have the favor of God. Please listen very carefully. A lot of people blow off introductions to messages, but this is not one I don't think you should blow off too quick. And that is, if grace is the same thing as favor, and if Jesus was the favor of God, the only way you're going to get the favor of God because he will only grant his favor to someone who's perfect. He will only grant his favor to someone who is perfect. So how in the world do we get to participate in the favor of God? Okay, those of you who believe in trichotomy, that's body, soul, and spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. What third is 100% perfect? Spirit. You're renewed, you're regenerated, you're made new, you're made perfect in Christ, you're holy, you're chosen, you're a priest for the high priest. All of the perfection that is required to be one of God's favored ones is because you're in Christ. Your mind, will, and emotions, which is what your soul is, is still carrying the trash around of the enemy lying to you all the days before you got saved. Your body literally has sin inside every cell of your body, and modern DNA actually proves that. You're missing links to perfection. There is science that your body has got sin in it. But your spirit is 100% perfect. Now, how in the world do we get that perfection to overflow into the mind, will, and emotions? And so, Shannon, if you would look up for me Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18, I'd like to show you how favor moves into the mind, will, and emotions. It's a practical thing that God's given us. Try one, Peter. Won't be the first time I've gotten those two mixed up. Yeah, 2.18. Is that in 1, Peter? Yeah, okay. That's where I was off. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. In our earlier illustration, who, who was this seat? What did this seat represent? God. And we called it the what seat? The Bema seat, which is the mercy seat. And then here we had what? Okay, let me back up then. Who did Moses represent? Which is the character of? So who did Moses represent? Who did Joshua represent? Literally, Joshua in the name Jesus. 
They go together. So Jesus is the staff. Moses is the figure representative of the bearer of the law, God. Here we have Jesus who is the staff that comforts us. But he also has a rod. Thy rod and thy staff, thy rod and thy staff comfort us. See, say, I thought Jesus came to bring peace. Don't forget this old niche. The staff is the symbol of comfort. And you bump people to move them along the way. But the, the shepherd also carried a rod. Jesus' first coming is the representation of the staff of the living God. His second coming is the rod. The rod is only used for one thing. What is it? To bring discipline. And so Satan's trying to get the entire world locked up into Jesus being the one who brings comfort. Thy rod and thy staff, it comfort me. Jesus representing the staff of God and the rod of God is the first and second coming. The Holy Spirit is that sword. It's different than the staff. It's different than the rod. The sword is coming to destroy. What's that passage when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but I, I think you shared it with me this week. But I came with a sword to... So the sword is the Holy Spirit inside Jesus. The sword of the Spirit. That's literally what the Word tells us. The sword of the Spirit. So let's put it all together. You have God in the Rhema seat. You have Jesus Christ who represents the staff and thy rod. And then you have the Holy Spirit who represents the sword that's going to be drawn inside through Christ Jesus when he comes on that white horse with fire in his eyes, drawn sword, the sword's on fire. He's in his full color of king of kings. And we're going to see that horse, white horse, coming from the eastern sky with fire in his eyes, beautiful long gray hair, and a sword that is filled with flames, which is symbolic of the power manifested out of the Holy Spirit. So he's going to have the Holy Spirit in hand. He's going to have the aged wisdom of his own father. He's going to have fire in his eyes, which means no matter what direction you look at me, you're going to see the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I speak, it's going to be what coming out of my mouth? A sword. So you look into his eyes and you're seeing the flames of the living Holy Spirit. You're seeing a drawn sword that is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's on fire and that is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And every time he speaks, there's a sword that shoots out of his mouth, which is the Holy Spirit. Let's back up again. We have God on his rhema seat. He's not going to move. He is the God of mercy. We have Jesus Christ who, who represents the staff and the rod, bringing comfort to people and disciplining people. 
Then you have the Holy Spirit who is the sword, the blue sword that glows around evil and intimidates evil. And then you have when he comes back, he is all those together. He is the representation of the living God through his hair. You see, when I had Jack touch the old man's hair, there's so much in the scriptures about hair. A lot. For a woman, it is her glory. And men are not to be as women. So that's why they had to cut. So your modern haircuts, young men, comes from a biblical mandate. And women were never to cut their hair. Ever. It'd be like trimming off the glory of the living God. Our whole society is built on this. Because when he comes from those eastern clouds and we see the beautiful gray hair, we see the fire in his eyes, we see the drawn sword, we see the colors of king of kings, we see the white horse that is symbolic for the power over all creation, fully ready for a battle. I can't describe to you what that looks like. I don't think any human can. But he gave us enough to get a snapshot, a little thumbnail of what's coming. So what has the enemy done? Let's back it up. God the Father is all about mushy, mushy, mushy. Mercy for everyone. Grace for everyone. The talk about God in songs is endless. But is there a talk about Jesus Christ? Not so much. If we can just push the one out of the way who demonstrates 100% obedience, that would be cool. Because then you get to decide when you're going to submit to your father. So God's become emergent. He's become a universalist. And Jesus, well, he's just a prophet. He's no different than you and I, but he was a little smarter than us. So this rod and staff thing, they aren't quite sure what to do about that because they're not going to turn over and get spanked by Jesus. And then you have the Holy Spirit. Now, well, whew, what's that? That's your true weapon? Something you can't see? Something you can't explain? Something that just is not in dictionaries around the world? I mean, who can explain this weapon called the Holy Spirit? I can and some of my friends out there can define the Holy Spirit very adequately and scripturally. Not our world today. Brazen young children staring in the face of authority and basically saying, I'm not listening to you. Jesus said these words, and don't ever forget them, young people. I don't care what country you're from. What you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Every time you rise up against your school teacher, every time you rise up against your mother, every time you rise up against your father, every time you rise up against the manager at Walmart, you are rising up against the living God. 
it goes upline. So what proceeds out of a mouth of a man or woman is recorded in the book of life. You want to know what he's doing? I'll tell you what God's doing on his, his mercy seat. He's got a book in his hands. And he's recording everything that's coming out of your mouth. You go ahead and defy your mother this week. Defy your father. Defy your pastor. Defy your teachers. And it is getting recorded. Because when judgment day comes, every single offense against the the Bema seat will be addressed by all. Indwelt or not. The difference is, those who have the indwelling life of Christ already have the perfection of the favor of God through grace, who is Jesus Christ. But those who don't have it, every jot and every tittle, those are Hebrew. There's little marks that are made around Hebrew words to give it different emphasis. Every jot and every tittle you will be confronted about. Because on those days that you look at that authority figure and you're defying them, you are having that written down in the book of life. And what does it say in Revelations 21? If anyone adds or deletes from this book, I shall delete them from the book of life. Now, I believe in security of salvation, but I do not. And what that means is that God is God and I am not. And if he's got someone over here on chapter 7, and he's got recorded who's all had the indwelling life of Jesus Christ, means their name gets written in the book of life. These people listed in the book of life are the book of Jesus It's the book of truth. It's the book of the indwelt. And he's somehow saying, if anyone messes around with my word, adds or deletes to this sound doctrine, I'm going to go to chapter 7 and I'm going to take my spiritual marker and delete you from my book. So what that tells me is some of my charismatic pastors who don't believe in security of salvation, they use this passage on me. And I reply, as I'm replying to you today, you're correct. There's no such thing as Calvinistic security of salvation. But there is security in salvation. And those who endure to the end who do not tempt the living God to have their name erased from the book. Are you with me or not? It's those who endure to the end, those shall be saved. Now, Shannon's going to read for us verse 19. And I want us all to listen very carefully. And those of you who are listening online, I really want you to either click on the Bible that we have with our podcast. If you just click on that scripture... It'll open up for you. We have a Bible connected to our podcast. Or open your Bible that you might have with you. But this is very important that you see this with your eyes, you hear it with your ears, so you can comprehend what God is saying about grace, favor, remembering, 
it means the same thing. Okay, verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Where you saw and read the word favor, put Jesus' name in there. For this finds Jesus, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Okay, now let's, let's remember what, what we just read a few minutes ago is 18, and that is, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to what kind of authority? All authority. Whether it is reasonable or unreasonable. Now, it moves on. He moves on and shares with these people. If you want to get God's favor, if you want to get Jesus, and I would even take it one step further in my sometimes logical mind, is would be proof that you have Jesus, is whether you can submit. And if you can't, if you're facing your teacher, you're facing your mother, you're facing the cop, you're facing your father, you're facing whoever, and you are resisting constantly that you can't go a half a day without doing it, there is a confession there. You're arrogant, you're filled with pride, and you're confessing that I will only submit to Satan himself. That's what's being confessed. Because Satan is the grand symbol of rebellion. The first symbol, manifestation of indweltism is submission. It is really simple, guys. So if you want to get God's favor, start at verse 18 again. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Stop. Who's a servant here? All of us. Dead or alive in Christ. You're a slave. I am glad to announce to you that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Is that in the scriptures? Yes. yes. It's everywhere. I'm a volunteer slave of Jesus Christ. And he's telling these people who are intellectuals this. They're not getting this. In fact, the first ones to respond were the ladies. They didn't get it. But he just came off of a passage about talking about government and churches. And then he hits them with 18, and that is, what's the next phrase? Uh, yeah, okay, so servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only... Okay, stop. Okay, with all what? Respect. respect. If you want to do a study on the word respect... You will be blessed. Respect is a willing response to expectations. Okay, so what that, why that's so important to me is whatever the expectation is of the reasonable authority or the unreasonable authority, your job is simply to show re-spect, to bring their expectation into reality. That's respect. Okay, now start from the beginning again. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Okay. 
who do our people want to submit to today? You know, people who struggle with authority, usually what they bring out uh, before me if we're talking about it is, you expect me to respect that? She's mean, she's harsh, she's this, he's that, he's whatever. And it's almost like they've come to their own conclusion of who they're going to respect. You need to earn my respect. I cannot tell you how many times I've had that. If I get a buck for every time I've heard that the last 30 years of ministry... I would never have to ask for support again. But here's what you're saying, listener. If you're looking at the person in front of you and saying, you're going to have to earn my respect. In other words, you're going to have to become a reasonable authority to get my favor. And here's what you're saying. So I'm the school teacher, and that's what this arrogant young man is saying to me. Okay, stay right there. Um, he says he's not going to respect me unless I'm reasonable and earn his respect. Holy Spirit goes, really? And presents to Jesus, I'm sorry, but he's not going to respect you unless you earn it. And then Jesus goes, oh, Father, he won't respect you unless you earn it. That's what you're doing. And if you don't think that's not going to get recorded in the book of life, in the early chapters, you are deceived. What proceeds out of the mouth of a young person is recorded in the book. No, we don't think like that. We only submit to people who have proven themselves to us, who we have labeled as worthy of our honor and respect. And what's the rest of the verse say? This finds favor if the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Okay, so this is how we get favor. Thanks, Lord. That's not earning it, I just want you to know. Could you not change the entire structure of your sound wisdom for me? What's wrong with you? You're arrogant. You expect me to submit to unreasonable authority when I have a mother who gets upset or a father who just won't be unreasonable and go on and on and on and on. That's our world. And you think they're going to get to the Holy of Holies? The first sign of indweltism is your respect for authority because all authority that is established is established by God. He who opposes these authorities opposes God. That is your mother. That is your father. That is your pastor. That is your mayor. That is your president. That is the entire world of authority, including the managers and the stores you're going to shop in tomorrow. You want God's favor? You better start buckling under sorrow. You want grace? I'm just keeping the words together. You better buckle under suffering unjustly. Unjustly means suffering under an authority figure 
who is harmful to you. Not righteous. God doesn't separate it out. He's saying it's all the same. All authority that established. Where is that found, by the way? Romans what? 13, 1 through 6. There's no difference. Now 20. For what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay, so number 99, mercy enacted in grace. If you keep our illustration intact, mercy takes action in grace, which is the life of Jesus. It's manifested through the Holy Spirit inside the indwelt believer, and it comes out as a drawn sword or a sword that shoots forth from your mouth. So when you speak, it is the sword of the Spirit coming out of your mouth. That's a sign of indwelt-ism. God into Jesus, in through the Holy Spirit, and out through the believer's tongue. The tongue is a very vicious thing. It can send you to hell, or it can save you. If you don't think he's listening, you might want to reconsider that. One, uh, Second Thessalonians 1. Verses 5 through 12. This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Uh, you may consider worthy the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, or to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this and also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and the fulfilling every desire for goodness and the work of the faith and with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the peace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at true grace, coined as we've got stated here as God's redemption at Christ's expense, it has a, a price tag that is associated with an expense. And so favor has a price to it. There's a condition to it. And next week we are going to talk about the conditions of grace, but there are conditions to being able to receive grace. So Christ had a price he had to pay to get you this free favor so that you can bear up under suffering unjustly so you can receive the favor of God. 
The proof of whether you have the favor of God living inside you, Christ living inside you, is for him to see if you do well, endure to the end when suffering unjustly. Your average American has no clue how to suffer unjustly, but you will very soon. But to have that mother and that daughter tied up and put into a pile on the street and have gasoline poured on them and have someone light them on fire and to have hundreds of people stand there and watch them until they are charred black with death. That's suffering unjustly. And many of you can't even get through an average command of your father or your mother. What has happened to our world today? Our children could not handle persecution for any measure today in America. There are some that can. I've heard from some of these kids that invite rejection and persecution and distress. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I've heard a few of them. But your average one and says, I am not going to respect you because you haven't earned it. That makes you God. And God doesn't deal well with other gods. It's not something he's in favor of. Humility means you're less than human. That is literally the translation. It means you're less than human. And Jesus being humble means he lowered himself even below the standards of men. That's powerful. Grace is Christ and Christ is grace. The specific self-giving of God to allow for his presence and activity in mankind was produced historically in the personhood of Jesus Christ and is manifested spiritually through Jesus Christ. The biblical identification of divine personhood of grace with the Godhead and work of Jesus Christ is so complete that apart from Christ there can be no talk of grace, let alone be no grace. New Testament grace comes in a person in the package called Jesus Christ and is bound up with him. Bound up means integrated, stitched to, part of the fabric. You can't separate it. So if the enemy can get Jesus separated from person, places, and things around you, he'll separate grace. It can't be done. It is at the core of his very identity. Paul seems reluctant to associate grace with any activity outside of the life of Jesus Christ, and we should do the exact same thing. So as Paul, we must equate grace and Christ as a single unit to be poured out into the vessel of the bride of Christ. We're just the vessel. I think those who are actually getting this, some of you have been grace walkers and talkers for many years, and you've never stopped to separate this out. And you're doing it now, and I'm just telling you, I am very grateful to some of you who are doing this. Because what some of you are finding, and I have testimonies to show you this, some are actually getting saved after being in ministry most of their life. Because they have never separated it. Of the mercy seat, the grace, and the Holy Spirit, they've never really 
taken God's view of what grace actually is. So grace is the mirrored image of Christ. And so what if grace mirrored only the activity of Christ? We would become works-oriented. Grace is identical with Jesus Christ. Thus it would be just as wrong to speak of many graces, which is a popular term used in the grace community. That's like speaking of many Christs. I wonder where that demonic doctrine came from. Hmm. There shall be many antichrists. Well. Or sacramental grace, which is something that the Catholic Church became very popular for. And they literally had water out of a tap, blessed, so that when you came in and stuck your fingers in it and, and put it on you, you put holy water on you. Well, can you imagine calling Christ just a active sacrament? Or created grace as of created Christ? Christ wasn't created. He always was. The conclusion would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the unpardonable sin. Someone read forth what that verse shows us on the screen. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Okay. Blasphemy is a very nasty word. It is one of the 13 references of Satan. And so, to blasphemy God the Father, to blasphemy Jesus Christ, seems to be something that can be forgiven. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the mediator between you and having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, if you blasphemy the Holy Spirit then you fall into a new category. More about that later. Grace is embodied in Christ. Grace is an action communicated by the personal being of God in Christ. Since behavior comes from identity, grace is God giving the action of his identity through Christ to willing vessels in which he both redeems and recreates new life in order for this recreated being indwelt believers to behold the very life and love of God himself. To have God's character in us, that's how it happens. The whole truth that grace is a mediator comes to us only by the communion of his own life with his Father and his Holy Spirit. So indwelt Christians must not view grace as a Christ-following benefit separated or detached from the being and activity of Jesus Christ that derives from his Father in him. It's all about in him. Who's in you? You ever heard the term, you got the devil in you? That's actually a great statement. Behavior comes from identity. So if you have someone defying what we shared about from First Peter, if you have someone defying that behavior, same where their identity is. <laughs> Certainly not in God. It is the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ functioning in and through the indwelt believers as they experience union or oneness of life in Christ Jesus. The connection of grace with the resurrection of Christ has seldom been noted, despite the fact that 
numerous New Testament texts link resurrection with grace. Paul writes that Christ Jesus was declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace, Romans 1.4. Jesus was raised because of our justification through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace into which we stand. Romans 4.25 and then again on Romans 5.2. The light of the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that grace is the dynamic activity of God by the life of the risen Lord Jesus. The indwelt Christian life, the life of the risen Lord Jesus, lived out in us, is only lived out by the dynamic of God's actions of mercy in his Son. The grace, or Jesus of resurrection life, of Jesus, is the essence of the indwelt Christian gospel. Those who resist the true gospel of Jesus Christ is what you're reading right now. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is not separating grace as an activity from Christ. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is keeping it intact. So that people go, that's the peace I've been missing. And that's the kind of testimonies I'm getting. That's the peace I've been missing. The essence of the life of our risen Lord Jesus is the content of divine indwelt Christian grace life of Jesus. Let believers be warned and made aware that an over-focus on the crucifixion or even some of you grace-soulistic teachers are putting an over-emphasis on co-crucifixion. Warning, warning to the neglect of the power of his resurrection, which is where grace is unleashed You see, the fact that Jesus' grace was put on the cross, the fact that Jesus and grace walked the earth for 40 days, the fact that Jesus and grace was ascended, what about the resurrection? You see, all of who God was in Christ Jesus when he stepped out of that tomb is when he started to glow like a light bulb. He wasn't glowing in the tomb. He wasn't glowing in Hades. When he was down there for three days. He wasn't glowing on the cross when he became sin on our behalf. There's no glowing going on. But when he stepped out of that tomb, he had his glorified body. And he wouldn't even let Mary touch him. Because he was in his glorified state. That's resurrection power. His grace had been unleashed. The activity of God in him was finished. Such will create a weak emphasis on grace. A resurrection perspective of grace also disallows the importing of grace into the Old Testament and somehow camouflaging God's mercy as being grace. It is not the same. The person and work of the Holy Spirit, the active mercy of God expressing the character of God, must also be understood as all-encompassing of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Sword, rod, and staff, and mercy. Okay, so this is all starting point is the Holy Spirit. 
Paul wrote to the Hebrews his conclusion, the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. It is important to remember that grace can be an alternative word for Christ and the spirit. To be in grace, Romans 5.2, is the same as to be in Christ, Romans 8.1. And in the spirit, Romans 8.9. To live by grace, by the spirit, and by Jesus Christ come from one and the same thing. It has also been noted that the experience of being full of the Holy Spirit, Acts 6.5, and being full of grace and power, Acts 6.8, is hardly to be distinguished, as the Holy Spirit and his activity have often been misunderstood in indwelt Christian thought. It is Little wonder that the connection of grace and the Holy Spirit has simply gone emergent or lukewarm. Now people are getting saved just because they get on their knees and pray. You getting on your knees and pray isn't saving you. I don't care if you feel guilty today or not. The only thing that's going to save you is a decision by God to say to Jesus Christ, and Jesus says to the Holy Spirit, this is the day of Stephen's salvation. He'll pray. It's something that happens in here that moves you forward and go, I don't have this indwelling life. It's not an outward push from a parent or a preacher. It's this war within being confronted with the living God saying, you don't have me. And if you want to push that aside and fall back on your four-year-old conversion, Have fun. We'll see how that works out in your 20s. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, body, will, and emotions. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's the entry point. That's your gateway. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what opens up the passageway to experience the fullness and favor of the living God, grace, which came from the mercy seat. The content of grace or Jesus' life is the function of mercy from the seat, the throne of the living God. And that Bema seat is where God sits and through the personhood of his son Jesus Christ and then through the Holy Spirit. Grace and mercy are divinely personal, not impersonal and or performance-based. Grace is the mirror image of the whole of the character of God, not proof or partial representation of the whole. And grace is dynamically active with the life of God and not static theological dogma to fuss over. And that's what's happening with a lot of the debates within the church. Now, I know there's probably some people that have been listening that are being prodded by the Holy Spirit to receive the indwelling life of Jesus. If you're a young person listening, you need to sit and talk to your parents about what does this really mean? Do I really have the indwelling life? Because I prayed this prayer when I was six. But do I really have the indwelling life? I'm here to tell you, parents, if your kids are asking that question, they probably don't have it. Have him. But that does not necessarily mean that's true. So that's why you need to spend time 
with that young person, helping them, helping you understand whether the true indwelling life of Jesus is in them. So there's a sample prayer on the PDF if you want to open that up. And it is just a sample. Those words aren't going to get you saved. It is the life of Christ that will get you saved. But this prayer helps put your thoughts together in what you probably should confess before the Lord. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at IOMAmerica.org. That's IOMAmerica.org.